Theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, our students pay a base of $75 per credit hour and a $375 per semester fee. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay, now, um, ultimately, um, as we move into the medieval period, this early premillennialism withers away. It did not continue. Um, at the height of its popularity, it seemed to go on a very rapid decline, and commonly church historians attribute this to two things, the excesses of Montanism and the verdict of Augustine. On the one hand, the Montanists were premillennialist, but they were wild-eyed fanatics. Their prophets were false prophets. One of them said that Christ was going to come back when she died. Well, he didn't clearly a false prophet. And and so Montanism brought Montanism in the early church, so the so the statement goes, gave premillennialism a bad name. So they began to reject it. The other thing that was really significant, and this may be even be the more important factor factor, is that Augustine in his City of God, if I remember right, came out against premillennialism. Uh, it actually appears from his writings, and he, I think he actually says this, I was once a premillennialist, I no longer believe it. And in the city of God, he gives a, uh, a, a careful, extended exposition of Revelation 20, which is amillennial in character. Okay? Uh, in fact, here, here you might like to hear his, his key pronouncement. Having just described premillennialism, he said, and this opinion would not be objectionable if it were believed that the joys of the saints and that Sabbath shall be spiritual and consequent on the presence of God, for I myself too once held this opinion. But as they assert that those who rise again shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets, and if I had read to you the quotation of Papias, you would know where this is coming from, okay, because that's... I'll, that's that physical produce and all the uh, all the prosperity, physical prosperity of the millennium is clear in Papias quotations and in other premillennialists as well. But as they assert that those who rise again shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets furnished with an amount of meat and drink such as not only to shock the feeling of the temperate, but even to surpass the measure of credulity itself, such assertions can be believed only by the carnal. They who do believe them are called by the spiritual, kiliast, which we may literally produce, reproduce by the name, now he's going from Greek, see, to Latin, we may literally produce by the name millenarians. It were a tedious process to refute these opinions point by point. We prefer to show how that passage of Scripture should be understood. And at this point, 
Augustine proceeds to give what we would call an amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20. Included toward the end of this exposition, interestingly enough, are clear indications that Augustine believed in a personal Antichrist who comes on the scene in the final little season before Christ's return after the thousand years are completed. Now, these chapters of Augustine are fascinating in the light that they shed on the withering of premillennialism in the early church. We see the process itself going on in the fact that Augustine admits that once he himself was, had held and then rejected premillennialism. We see something of the reason for Augustine's distaste for premillennialism. He sees it as an encouraging a carnal hope for the future. Augustine's subsequent exposition makes clear that, uh, makes clear an adequate alternative explanation of Revelation 20. So we can diagram it this way. Can I get this all on the screen at once? We'll see. Well, almost. This is the rise and fall of premillennialism in the early church. Okay? So, begins with premillennialism growing. You have Papias, about the year 100. You have Tertullian, the Montanist, and Irenaeus, and Justin Martyr by the year 200. You have Lactantius, Methodius, and Commodian by the year 300. Around the year 400 or 410, Augustine rejects it, and Montanism is repudiated, and premillennialism withers away. And there's really not much notice of it for about 1,100 years throughout the entire medieval period. And <clears throat> generally speaking, I don't know if this attained any kind of orthodox statement or conciliar statement or papal statement at all, but generally speaking, Roman Catholicism is amillennial. So you can get into this name-calling, man. You amillennialists are sympathetic to Roman Catholics, and we can say you premillennialists are, uh, hold the same doctrine as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, but which none of which does much good at all, okay? So, postscript. <clears throat> The pronouncements of Augustine were of high authority throughout the medieval church. Everybody wanted to have Augustine on their side. He was the doctor of the church par excellence. So if he said it, it was true, and it was clear that he was against premillennialism. And uh, he continues to exercise this kind of influence into the Reformation. Calvin and Luther held the same approximate views of eschatology as Augustine did. Yet the seemingly straightforward amillennialism of the city of God is not quite the whole story. And so there's a different angle on this that I just want you to consider and think about. Because there is something in the writings of Augustine that anticipates an eschatological perspective of more post-millennial character. Now the use of the term postmillennial indicates that it's time for another definition and chart. <clears throat> Premillennialism, postmillennialism is the view that the millennium is to occur post the second coming of Christ. That is, to, uh, that the millennium, uh, pardon me, is to occur prior to the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is after the millennium, post it. Thus, the explanation uh, is, however, that I've just given is not yet a sufficient definition. Because by this definition, amillennialism could be postmillennialism, because both believe that Christ comes back after the millennium. Right? Amillennials <clears throat> also believe that the millennium of Revelation 20 occurs before the second coming of Christ. So usually, postmillennialists themselves, when they use the terminology postmillennial, intend to distinguish themselves from amillennialists as well as premillennialists. So we've got to have another, an additional 
perspective to distinguish ah mills from post mills, okay? Postmillennialism usually refers, then, <clears throat> to a system of eschatology believe, that believes that a great golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity, a millennium, will spread over the world before Christ returns. It is clear that such an age has not yet arrived. Thus, postmillennialism usually teaches that this golden age or millennium is yet in the future, but will occur before Christ's second coming. And so we're now ready for our third chart. There you have postmillennialism. You have the Old Covenant, the resurrection of Christ, and then the Church Age, but the Church Age is now bifurcated. There is the period of the persecution and humiliation of the Church, then there is the period of the exaltation and millennial reign of the Church in the world. So you have the Church Age uh, necessarily divided into two parts. <clears throat> And it's that, that transition from persecution to the exaltation of the church in the world before the second coming of Christ, which I regard as the distinguishing feature of postmillennialism. If uh, they don't hold that, there's no way really to distinguish postmillennialism from amillennialism. You follow me? Questions? was the primary? Well, there are many different views that have been held of how that happens. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I think I'll just take a hold on that question because I'm going to come back to it, Mark. I want to show you how it happens in Augustine right now, however, and why I think that in some respects Augustine's view may fairly be called the kind of quasi or proto-postmillennialism. Okay? Now... You can take this for what it's worth. To a post-millennialist, this is going to sound really prejudiced, but so be it. Uh, they can write me nasty letters or ask me to defend myself in debate. Anyway. <clears throat> now, I am not saying, of course, that Augustine taught a full-blown or systematic post-millennialism. The view of Revelation 20, he expounds in the city of God, is clearly a millennial. The millennium is the entire time before the, between the first and second advents of Christ. Okay? Hear me say that, right? But now, on the other hand, uh, there are some interesting precursors or anticipations of later postmillennialism in Augustine. What happened was this. Augustine was involved in a heated and sometimes violent controversy with the, with the separatist Donatist churches in North Africa. This was a separatist party that had departed from the communion of the old Catholic Church. Sometimes they're painted as the true Christians as opposed to the old Catholics. Now, if you really actually read the history of the Donatists, there's a lot <laughs> more that needs to be said. It's not really not quite that simple, okay? But the sad reality is that during this controversy, it was Augustine. Uh, we can't we can't avoid seeing the flaws in our heroes, okay? It was Augustine who first presented a theological justification for the use of the state by the church to physically coerce the heretical or unconverted. If he wasn't the first, at least his, his uh, justification was the most influential, early uh, justification for this. Um, and this justification implied 
a clear alteration in the church's earlier anti-Nicene views of the relationship of the church to the state. And this alteration resulted in a new sacral view of society. We say it's a sacral society. A sacral society is one in which only one religion is permitted. To be a good citizen, you have to be a good church member. And to be a good church member, you have to be a good citizen. Okay? And all pre-Christian societies were sacral. There was no such thing as freedom of religion or separation of church and state in pre-Christians. Societies. Uh, someone is asking on the internet, <clears throat> Rolo asked, Post Mill is saying that the world is getting better or the church is growing? Um, from my perspective, Rolo, postmillennialism is saying that the world is getting better. And I distinguish that from saying that the church is growing. I think the church can grow, as I'm going to say later in these lectures, without the world getting better. Okay? Which is not always a that's kind of a paradox that some people have a hard time getting a hold of. <clears throat> now, the justification of of the state uh, supporting the true church by suppressing false churches is uh, uh, is uh, summarized by Brown, who is one of the great biographers of Augustine. Um, who says, Augustine had changed his mind on one point only. Ten years previously, he had thought that the ages before the coming of Christianity belonged to a more primitive stage of moral evolution, and that in his own days, Christianity was purely spiritual religion and had risen entirely above the physical sanctions and enforced observances of that shadowy past. Which, of course, in the theocracy, it's true, right? There was no freedom of religion in the theocratic kingdom, the Old Testament. You, you worshiped Jehovah or you were out or dead, all right? Um, so now Augustine, Augustine once thought that the church had gotten beyond that. Now Augustine's not really quite so sure about that. Augustine now began to appeal to the Old Testament to justify physical sanctions against unbelievers just as David should suppress the idolaters, so should Constantine suppress the false churches. So it was easy, says Leonard Verdine, to, for Augustine to slide back from Constantine to David and from the church state now known as Christendom to the church state that was Israel. The backward slide is easy in the context of a flat theology. The phrase flat theology is Verdine's apt way of describing a theology which has missed the progression and upward movement of biblical theology. In other words, and again using the language of Verdine, Augustine missed the distinction between early and late that characterizes the biblical revelation. Having missed the biblical distinction, Verdine notes that Augustine substitutes a false early and late of his own. This false early and late adopted by Augustine was a result of his theological justification of coercion. <clears throat> so I quote, a complaint was raised by some who were having difficulty accepting the idea of compulsion in the things of the faith, that there was no, quote, example found in the writings of the evangelists and apostles of any position presented in behalf of the church to kings of the earth against her enemies, which is, of course, true. You can't find that in the New Testament. This is precisely what Augustine and his large following were doing. In his letter to Vincentius, Augustine replied, Who denies this? None such is to be found. 
But at that time, the prophecy, Be wise now, therefore, O kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, was not yet fulfilled. But now, with the rise of the Constantinian change in the Roman Empire, the prophecy has fulfilled. The humble church has become the exalted church, and the persecuted church has become the triumphant church, and there is a very significant transition that has taken place now in the church age. This looks a lot like post-millennialism. Uh, Verdine doesn't miss this. However, before long, he and his followers were identifying the change that had put an end to cross-bearing with the millennium as pictured in the Apocalypse. It is not then far-fetched to find the origin of the distinction between the persecuted church and the millennial church in Augustine. This distinction is the distinguishing feature of what may be called systematic postmillennialism. Neither is it surprising that views of the relation of church and state, similar to his, have often characterized not a few systematic postmillennialists. In our day, uh, postmillennialism has been uh, popularized and promulgated preeminently among Christian Reconstructionists and theonomists, who in fact, who in fact believe in some way, shape, or form in the real reestablishment of a state church. So, uh, post-millennialism, not perfectly, not everyone, but post-millennialism has often been characterized by views of the union of church and state, not the separation of church and state, and of the right and legitimacy of the government to suppress false churches. Okay? Now, not all post-millennialists believe that, but many have... And uh, I think you have in Augustine at least a uh, precursor, an adumbration of the later development of postmillennialism. Questions? Okay, we are going to file three. <clears throat> Go ahead, Nathan. Accuse maybe a strong word, but at least point out that postmillennialism tends to prosper when the newspaper headlines are good. Like, under what did you just say? <laughs> well, like under Constantine, the church was doing well, so uh -huh. this arise of the beginnings of postmillennialism aren't they similar to post World War II when it kind of took off again? Everything was going well and it enjoyed a Hmm. <laughs> um, I haven't thought about post-World War II. You certainly have something that, like, like uh, the American hegemony over the world, with the exception of the Cold War and the, and the, thir and the Second World, but you certainly have American hegemony, and it's, it's a kind of context that uh, would make sense for the rise of post-millennialism. Um, although the entire and the entire 20th century is rather hostile to postmillennialism, just like it was hostile to the optimism of the Enlightenment and modernism. And here's a scary story, though. Um, do you know that I have been told that there are Christian Reconstructionists in China? Yes, Communist China. There are Christians who have, who have adopted and, and embraced uh, theonomy and Christian Reconstruction. Now, you can imagine 
uh, if Chinese, if 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 China became, in some broad sense, Christian, and the kind of Christianity that they adopted held theonomy or Christian Reconstruction, <laughs> now that 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 makes an interesting scenario to think about. Now, granted, it might be unlikely, and yet on the other hand, it might not be so unlikely. A Chinese world hegemony of Christian Reconstructionists. Now, oh, there's a scary thought, <clears throat> but anyway. Um, but I've been told that. Uh, now, granted, there may be only 15 of them in the entirety of China, but who knows what could happen. <clears throat> okay. Um, we're coming to file three then, and, and now uh, leaving the early and medieval church and coming to the great conversation of the Reformation and modern church, all right? And maybe to things that uh, you're much more personally familiar with. So we're going to continue our study of the Great Conversation, but now we turn to the Reformation and modern church periods. After a thousand years of medieval darkness, stagnation, and doctrinal deviation, the Reformation showed a new light on the face of the Christian church. And might, one might expect this to mean a lot of new light on the subject of eschatology. But for the most part, the Reformation brought no new departures on that issue. Uh, the Reformation inherited and for the most part adopted without modification or complaint the old amillennialism of Augustine as laid out in the city of God. Because, you know, um, the Reformation was not restorationist. It was reform reformatory. You know the difference? Restorationists says that, say that the whole true church has basically disappeared for a thousand years. And now we're here to bring back the true church. Calvin and Luther never took that position. What they said was, we don't need to restore the church, we need to reform the church. Yes, they felt that the Roman Catholic Church had fallen into heresy, especially after the Council of Trent. But there's a, there's a big difference. And one of the things that means is they didn't reject the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, and they didn't reject the Augustinian doctrine of amillennialism either. Well, in only one matter may the Reformation be credited with an innovation or contribution with regard to eschatological teaching. And this was that they were quite sure that the papacy, the line of popes, was the Antichrist. This, this meant that they, had, that they no longer held the doctrine we saw many early church fathers held, held of a personal Antichrist. The Antichrist was no longer a single person. He was a line of uh, of people. Um, I have a question on the internet. Uh, is this one of the similarities between post-mill and pre-mill that the newspaper needs to be held in one of their hands, therefore affecting the popularity of the position? That's an interesting observation, um, uh, Brandon. And, uh, you know, there is something, you know, I'll, I'll say it this way. Here's, here's the problem we are millennials have. You can write Great novels from a premillennial position, left behind, sold millions of copies, get rich. Uh, and I think, I think you could write great novels from a postmillennial position too. I think you, I, I wish I was a postmillennialist because I think I could make some money writing postmillennial novels. The problem is, amillennialism is so straightforward, simple, and plain. What can you do with amillennialism? Not much. Can't make any money selling books based on that basis. So thank you, Brandon, for pointing that out. Anyway, um, the one matter that was kind of unique to the Reformation was that they became quite clear 
that the papacy was the Antichrist. And uh, that was pregnant with implications for the modern period. And Luther, although not apparently in Calvin, this identification of the papacy as the Antichrist led or suggested or at least fit nicely into what has been called the historicist system of interpretation. And now I need to uh, explain to you three more words that uh, we learned in this conversation we're listening to. Historicism, futurism, and preterism. Okay? What do I do with that? <clears throat> historicism. Futurism, preterism. These are methods. They're not systems of eschatological thought. They are methods of interpretation, okay? Primarily having to do with the book of Revelation, okay? <clears throat> Historicism viewed the book of Daniel, but especially the book of Revelation, as giving a consecutive outline of the events of the present age up till the second advent. Recently read the new biography of Jonathan Edwards by what's that guy's name? Um, you know, if you're um, the scholar from Notre Dame, somebody help me. I can't, I can't bring it back right now. Anyway, it becomes clear when you read Edwards. Edwards was clearly in the historicist tradition. He believed that uh, that the book of Revelation gave an a symbolic account of the unfolding of redemptive history step by step through the present age from the first to the second advent of Christ. And he could tell you approximately where you were in the book of Revelation. Okay? Um, and, and, and this was a view very commonly held, very commonly held in the Sons of the Reformation. Now, of course, to discern the true teaching of these books, a symbolic and figurative system of interpretation had to be utilized often associated with the historicist method of interpretation, was the theory that the days of prophecy stand for years. This led to the idea that the 1260 days of Revelation 11.3 and 12.6 stood for an important prophetic period of 1260 years during the present age. Usually, or often, I think, that was identified with the rise of Antichrist and the fall of Antichrist. Okay? And this idea became enormously significant in later prophetic interpretation. Now, in order to blunt the edge of this Protestant sword, pointed at the heart of Roman Catholicism, because historicism then said, uh, was identified with the notion of the Pope being the Antichrist, Roman Catholic interpreters developed two alternative methods of prophetic interpretation. These views, known as preterism and futurism, later became important in the history of Protestant eschatological thought. <clears throat> uh, and Froome, who is uh, actually a Seventh-day Adventist historian, basically what they did was this. They said historicism's wrong. Actually, the book of Revelation must be interpreted preteristically. The advantage for Rome was this. Everything in the book of Revelation happened by the years AD 70, so it couldn't possibly be talking about the base papacy. Or uh, the other alternative was futurism. Everything in the book of Revelation, for the most part, is talking about, talking about the seven-year tribulation in the future. So again, that can't possibly be talking about the papacy, right? So either, either method saved them from the sword of historicism aimed at the heart of Roman Catholicism. 
Historicism then saw the book of Revelation as providing a consecutive symbolic account of the history of the Gospel Age. Preterism thought that the book of Revelation dealt with events long fulfilled before Constantine, the period of the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Futurism views the events of the book of Revelation as dealing mainly with events connected with the future tribulation before the coming of Christ. Now, of course, these three views do not exclude other possible interpretations of the book of Revelation. In fact, I hold an entirely different one, but they were the most common views historically. And they dominated the interpretation of the book of Revelation for much of the period since the Reformation. Uh, here's a question you may be asking some of you. What's the difference? What do you mean by preterism? And what's the difference between preterism and hyperpreterism? Uh, preterism says that most prophecies were fulfilled by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. Hyperpreterism says they all were. That's rough and simple, but just generally true, okay? Um, there are orthodox preterists today. Uh, someone like R.C. Sproul is in that camp. Um, I think some of the Puritans were in that camp, as I'm going to tell you. Some of them actually believe that the new heavens and new earth prophesied in Second Peter 3. This is a preterist interpretation of Second Peter 3. The new heavens and new earth in Second Peter 3 is the gospel age in which dwells righteousness. Uh, <clears throat> you say, who in the world can believe that? John Owen. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, you know, it kind of blows you away, but uh, that's, that was the state of thought. Uh, and postmillennialism is uh, frequently associated with a preterist system of interpretation. Okay? Not always, but frequently. <clears throat> So you see the three interpretive schemes of the book of Revelation. And here's the definition. And you see the uh, historicism. Here's a consecutive symbolic account. Uh, from the resurrection of Christ to the eternal state, preterism, the book of Revelation deals mainly with the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70. Futurism, the book of Revelation deals with, mainly with events beginning with the great tribulation just before the return of Christ. Okay? So then, Protestantism firmly in the amillennial tradition of Augustine, but also convinced that Rome was the Antichrist and therefore inclined to an historicist interpretation of prophecy, uh, is what we confront at the beginning of the history of the modern church. Now, that's what the Reformation gives you, okay? And that's the starting point for the history of eschatology in the modern church, which I think can be adequately, although uh, when you talk about church history, there are exceptions to everything, can be I want to talk about the rise <clears throat> of eschatological thought in the modern church under three headings. The rise of postmillennialism, the reaction of premillennialism, and the return of amillennialism. Now, I'm not a Hegelian philosopher, but this is somewhat something like Hegelian philosophy with its thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Okay? Postmillennialism, premillennialism, amillennialism. So here we go. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, 
visit us at cbtseminary.org.